this truly be our desire, that which we just sang, that you are alone our desire, that we truly long to worship you in truth and in spirit. For you have created us for that very purpose. You have changed our hearts so that there is a desire to worship you in truth and spirit. We know that you are worthy of all praise. We know that you are the one that controls all things and that you have even brought us here this day so that we might have a better knowledge of who you are and what your will is for our life. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own ignorance, but you have sent your word and your spirit to teach us so that we might know what your will is, especially in this subject of prayer. And Father, we do pray as your disciples prayed, teach us to pray so that our prayers are pleasing to you, so that you hear our prayers, so that you answer our prayers. We thank you, Father, that you allow us this privilege, and truly it is a privilege to be able to commune with the living God. Do not allow us, Father, to take this lightly, but cause us to see just how awesome and amazing it is to come into your throne room to spend time worshiping you in prayer and asking for you to meet our needs. How we come and how we ask, Father, that you would be glorified in all that is done in this service this day. We come asking, Father, that you would be gracious and merciful in teaching your children truth and saving sinners from their sin. We know, Father, that unless your Spirit comes, all is vain, so we cry out to you to send your Spirit in power to work in our midst. For we know that it's your Spirit that is able to do conviction, that you know our hearts better than we know our own heart. You know our sins better than we know our own sins. So we pray, Father, that our eyes would be open to these things so that we may repent and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And we ask, Father, that you would work in our midst to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray for those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and needs. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered greatly this past week due to the storm. Pray that their needs would be met. We are confronted again with the reality that life is so short. Possessions can be taken away so quickly. So cause us, Father, not to look to the things of this world, but to look to the only one sure foundation, being, of course, Christ and Christ alone is able to 
give us the strength to persevere in such days as this. We pray that you would use us for your glory and honor. Bless our time together, and it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. As we continue to look at the Lord's Prayer, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we will read again verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Lord's Prayer begins by revealing to us that everything begins with God. And we must keep that in mind. Our prayers must begin by acknowledging who God is. Now, of course, we learn who God is from the Bible. And that's why it's so important that we study the Word of God. And we see that in the Bible that we are to acknowledge that we are praying to a holy, holy, holy God. That we are entering into the presence of the triune God. Now, it's easy for us to utter these words called the Lord's Prayer, as I've also mentioned, a model prayer. And especially utter these words, hallowed be your name, without the slightest thought of how profound and holy these words are. To offer this, position, this petition, which is the first petition, from our heart means that we desire God's name to be sanctified by us, but also realizing that at the same time, in one sense, we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to do this. We cannot do it in our own strength. What I mean by that, unless the Spirit of God lives in us, and unless the Spirit of God enables us to pray in this manner, we can't pray in this manner. It goes back to what I've stressed often, unless we have been born again, God does not hear our prayers, and we are unable to pray in a manner that's pleasing to God. Now, this request implies a longing to be empowered to glorify God in everything that we do, so that He makes Himself known to us and makes Himself known to others, that we may honor Him in every single situation of life every circumstance that comes our way so that we might honor Him, even in those difficult situations. And we see that, of course, in the life of Joseph. I don't know, if, I mean, not Joseph. Well, Joseph is one that had a very difficult life, but I'm talking about um, Job. The most difficult situations, I think, recorded in the Bible other than Christ Himself and how He persevered. And, of course, the truth that we see that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10... 31, that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, everything is to be done to the glory of God. 
Now, when we realize this, and we come to God in prayer, we shouldn't simply start out with our needs. That's what we're prone to do, right? The first thing we want to bring to God, God, I have these needs, hear my prayer, answer these needs. What Jesus is instructing us to do is that when we pray, we begin with worship and adoration of Yahweh. We must give God honor and praise if we belong to Him and realize that prayer is a part of what we've looked at already earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now last week I preached on God's fatherhood and how glorious it is that we are able to approach Him knowing that He loves us, knowing that He's adopted us into His family, knowing that He desires for us to commune with Him. I mean, just like any earthly father. A good earthly father wants his children to commune with him, and he wants to commune with them. But to a greater extent, that's how God is. He wants us to commune with him. Now, I closed last Sunday's sermon with this quote. Since God is our father, we will love to be near him and commune with him in prayer. True believers love to get near to God in the preached Word they draw close to His voice. In the Lord's Supper they sit at His feet and feast upon Him spiritually. Now today we have the privilege of doing both of these. You're going to hear God's Word and then we are going to be able to sit at His table and feast upon Him spiritually. Now, we know that we come to the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus made this very clear when He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, we know that He's primarily speaking of salvation, but that salvation includes prayer. This speaks of the wonderful privilege we have of coming to the Father. We cry out to the Father, of course, at the very beginning of our spiritual life, for salvation. We cry out in repentance and faith. How did the tax collector pray as Jesus gave that parable? He said, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He looked only to the true and living God for His salvation. And likewise, that's what we must do. And we must realize that when we approach God, we must approach Him with praise and adoration. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never times of emergency that we are not able to ask God quickly for a need that we have. I remember, I don't remember how many years ago, when you get old, you forget those sort of things. I know it's been about 20-something years. Uh, Pastor Kerry Kimbrell and I were driving down I-20 after doing some work, and it was sprinkling rain, and then all of a sudden my truck was spinning because we got hit by an 18-wheeler. And I thought we were going over the bridge right there where it divides and you go 55 south and 20. I thought we were going over that bridge because we were headed straight toward that bridge. I didn't have time to say, Lord, let me give you praise, adoration. No, I quickly cried out to God, save us, Lord. And the Lord heard our prayer. 
And he answered our prayer. We hit the bridge and it bounced us like a ping pong ball or a pinball machine. Do they even know what pinball machines are today? I don't know. That's a thing of the past. But anyway, hit us that side of the bridge and we, we headed toward the other four lanes of traffic and all I could see coming toward us were cars. And I said, we're going to be hit again. But the Lord spared us. That's how gracious God is when we come to Him, even in those times of emergency. But our daily approach is what Jesus is saying. Our daily approach to God should be in this manner of praising Him, reverently praising Him in adoration, which of course He deserves and He desires from us. But again, this is for only believers. We have this privilege of bringing honor to God and coming to Him in prayer. Now, the God we approach is in heaven, and we know that He rules all creation, including your affairs as well as my affairs. I mean, there is nothing whatsoever that's not under His control. I speak about that in the newsletter. You may have already read the newsletter. If you haven't, you can pick up a hard copy or else you got one sent to you by our group me. And it speaks about even what transpired this past week. The storm. Because there will be people asking questions. Why didn't God prevent that storm? Was God in control? They'll all ask all different questions. And we should be ready to answer those questions. Yes, God was in control. Well, why did God allow it to happen. Now, I can't tell you every single reason why God allowed it to happen, but I know one reason why God allowed it to happen, to wake us up. To wake us up that we are sinners, to wake us up that we need Him every hour. Also, that He's a gracious God, because many people were spared. I am totally surprised that more people were not killed as a result of that storm. God was very gracious. I can remember a storm about the same side that hit our coast, In 69, I believe it was, Camille. And there were over 200 people killed. So God was merciful and gracious in how He sovereignly controlled that storm. God's greatest concern is for us to know Him and to address Him in a manner that's pleasing to Him. Jesus says, Hallowed be Thy name. Now, children, that, that word hallowed, do you know what it means? Well, if you don't, ask your parents. They'll tell you after church. No, let me. Hallowed means set apart. And you can ask your parents. Parents, do you know what hallowed means? It means to be set apart. It means to be revered holy. Now, we see that God's name is holy, as I've already mentioned. Holy, 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 the Scripture teaches us. And it's clearly taught throughout Scripture Even at this very moment, God in heaven, the triune God, is being praised by the angelic beings as they sing or say to Him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, when we come to God's presence, we must come with great reverence, great awe realizing who He is and bow before Him reverently. He is not to be taken lightly, but He is to be honored as our holy God, our holy judge, our holy Savior. Now, left to ourself, it's difficult 
for us to grasp just how holy and how perfect God is. But we are able to have a better understanding of Yahweh's holiness by seeing what is stated in Scripture about who God is and what God has done. Now, God's name represents all that He is. His attributes, again, this is why I've emphasized time and time again, the attributes of God, so that you might have a greater knowledge of who God is, how glorious He is, and how we are to worship Him. We must keep in mind that God is other. In other words, He's not like us. He is not on the same level of us as us. He is so far above us and beyond us that we cannot totally comprehend who He is. What we comprehend about God is what God has said about Himself in Scripture. And we will spend, of course, all of eternity learning more and more about God and never exhaust that. That's how great God is. Now, because we have a limited knowledge, our minds are just pea brains compared to how vast God is. But all that we need to know of God is in Scripture so that we might adequately know Him and worship Him according to Scripture in a manner that's pleasing to Him. That's, that's why we worship in what is called the regulative principle. In other words, we're only going to worship God in the manner that He has told us to worship Him. Because that's what pleases Him, see? And we need to understand that. So that we might come before Him in worship and praise, bringing our petitions, communing with Him in a way that is beneficial to us in our spiritual growth and perseverance. And it is truly amazing that this God has condescended to this earth in the incarnate Son of God. He did it, of course, we know, to bring our salvation, to teach us who He is and how He can commune with the One who is holy, holy, holy. What a privilege it is for us to approach God only by the merit of Jesus Christ through His sinless life, His substitutionary atonement, His righteousness that He has given us. Now, the first petition asks that all men everywhere sanctify God's name. Hallowed be your name. Now, I've already pointed out what hallowed means, apart, to be set apart, to be sanctified. It has to deal with a separation of purity. God is separated from us. God is pure, and only by being in Christ are we allowed to commune with Him, because Christ is separate. Christ is pure. And when the Bible speaks of the holiness of God, it communicates that otherness to us. God, as I said, is not like you or me. He's other. He is majestic. He's perfect. He's incomparable to any creature. As one theologian said, holiness is not merely one of God's attributes. It presents His essential nature. Holiness makes God who He is. See, holiness is over umbrella, over all of His other attributes. So God's holiness reveals to you and me who He is and His attitude toward all sin. As seen there in Isaiah chapter 6, 
as the heavenly beings worship Him, praising Him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now this morning in our Old Testament reading, we see that Moses got an idea of who God is. When he saw the burning bush and he approached the burning bush and he was quickly told what? Take off your sandals. And this was a token of respect and submission. See, the ground that Moses was about to step on was holy. Now, why was that ground holy? Because the presence of God was there. That's what made it holy. Now, the presence of God, when it left, the ground was no more holy. But while the presence of God was there, it was holy. And we approach to God, who is a God who says, prepare yourself to meet me. We are to glorify God with our bodies. Our bodies are what? A temple of God. So we're to glorify God with our body. He meets with us. In other words, you don't have to come into this building to meet with God. You can meet with God anywhere because your body is a temple of God. Now, are we to come into this building to worship God? Of course we are. Do not forsake the assembling together of the brethren. So we come to corporately worship. So there's the corporate worship and there's the individual worship. We can worship God every single morning or every single night as we, corp- I mean, as we individually bow in prayer and seek Him. So we see that we have that privilege. Well, we have to understand as far as our corporate worship is concerned, there is to be this reverence. That's one reason why we tell our children, don't run around in the worship. We're coming together reverently. I remember as a child, I always was a little nervous about going into the sanctuary, First Baptist Church, Lord. The old sanctuary is kind of a little spooky to me. But to go in there, because it was emphasized that that's where we go to meet God corporately. And, and it was something that you didn't take lightly. And I was taught that at a very early age when one Sunday I was cutting up, sitting in the balcony with my daddy, and he took me out to the bathroom, and uh, he made sure that I didn't go back into the worship service and cut And I didn't. I mean, from then on, I sat like a statue. That doesn't mean I listened to everything the pastor said, but I sat like a statue because I was fearful of what daddy would do to me. But worship is not to be flippant. It's not to be light. It's not to be rude. It's not to be indecent. But it's something to be set apart unto God who is holy. Second, the expression, your name, refers to God Himself. Now, in the Hebraic thought, linked together the name with the person or the thing. I mean, the name wasn't simply a word arbitrarily given to the person as it is today. I mean, often at the very last minute, you know, oh no, we had a little boy instead of a little girl, so we got to come up with a name real quick. Or we had a little girl instead of a boy, so we got to come up with a boy's name real quick. So in other words, uh, it's not like that. There was thought to give him. And often we see in Scripture, God would tell the person how to name that particular child because God knew what He had ordained that child to do. And He said, this is why you give the name to that child. In other words, it was designed to express something of that person's nature. And this is especially true of God and His name. 
He named himself. It says, thy name. It's meaning. God himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Jews wouldn't pronounce the name of God. The name here means God himself. And we see the purpose of the petition is to express this desire that God himself may be revered, may be honored among men, may be holy throughout the entire world. The name is other words, means all that is true of God and all that he is in and of himself and God in all that he does and all he is doing. So we see that God conveys Himself, who He is, by His names. And you can go out through Scripture and you see all these different names of God. Psalms 21 conveys this. He says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob defend you. So the name of God, Jacob. See, your name signifies God as He reveals Himself. And it has pleased the Maker of heaven and earth to make known who He is, not only His works, but also His actual attributes in Scripture. A.W. Pink says, But supremely so in Jesus Christ, in the written and personal Word of God, has displayed Himself to us, manifesting His glorious perfection, His matchless attributes of omnipotence, omnipresence, and omnipotence. His moral character of holiness, righteousness, goodness, and mercy. So we see that God has revealed Himself in these ways. He's also revealed Himself in the titles that are in the Bible. I mean, the Rock of Israel. He cannot lie. The Father of mercy, the Most High God, the Lord my Shepherd, the God of grace. And I could go on and on. There are numerous titles in the Bible which gives us an idea of who God is. So when we pray the name of God to be hallowed, we are requesting that His glory may be displayed by Him and that we may enable us to esteem and magnify Him likewise. So therefore, He reveals Himself in all that He does. All of His works, God is revealing Himself. He reveals Himself in all of His works that we see in the Bible that He's accomplished. We see that they are very descriptive of who God is. I mean, here are some passages. You can write them down. I'll read them quickly. Some verses that you can write down and go back and read later. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Say to the Lord of hosts, you priest who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So we see quite clearly God is seeking to teach the priests there in the Old Testament how they have not reverenced God and how they ought to reverence God. Isaiah 29, 23. But when he sees his children, the work of my hand in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the one of Jacob, holy one of Jacob, and fear 
the God of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 30, uh, 23. Ezekiel 36, 23. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And he's speaking, of course, to Israel. The nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So he's clearly pointing out that they have defamed his name by the way they've lived. And he said, but that's not going to continue. One day there's going to be when they will hallow the name of God because of what he does in their life. And then in New Testament, John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Jesus praying. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. And of course, how did He glorify it? He sent Christ to be our Savior. Then John 17, 6, Jesus' high priestly prayer, He says, I have magnified your name to men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And of course, that's the purpose Jesus came, to glorify God in all that He did and bring our salvation. So the glory of God's great name is the ultimate end of all things. That's the chief end of man, to glorify God. And every other quest must be subordinate to this one, this first petition, but in harmony with and in fulfillment of this first petition. In other words, we cannot pray aright unless we first of all honor God and He is chief in our heart. If we truly desire to honor the name of God, we must never ask anything that is contrary to His holiness. To ask something that is contrary to His holiness is blasphemy. It's to dishonor Him. And that's why we must know how to pray. That's why we must go to the Scriptures and make sure that we know how to pray so that we do not dishonor His name. Praying that God's name is hallowed is asking that He will move His creatures to give Him adoration that He's due. He has glorified His name in all ages. He's glorified His name in all of His providence, but especially in grace. So His power, His wisdom, His righteousness, His mercy have been a demonstration before others of who He is. And our desire should be that God will continue to glorify Himself in providence, in grace. I mean, we see how God's glorified Himself. Where? In the Scriptures and also in history. God has magnified His name by using... Methods that are extraordinary and even shocking to human beings. And sometimes His name has even been glorified by the wicked. I mean, children, y'all all like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I like that story. I'm an adult. I still like it. I mean, I love it. I mean, here they are. They come before King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. And uh, they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to worship you. We're not going to bow down to your idol. And of course, that doesn't make King Nebuchadnezzar very happy. There in Daniel chapter uh, 3, beginning with verse 16, they say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You know, we're not going to discuss it. 
we've, we've made up our mind. You're not going to change our mind. Now, if that is the case, our God, talking about um, what He's going to do to them as far as throwing them in the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. So what happened? You remember the story, children? What happened? Well, we know that he said, okay, boy, he was really upset. Now he said, make that furnace seven times hotter. It was so hot that they went to throw Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego into the furnace. What happened to the men that went to throw them in? They died. It was so hot that they died. And then, of course, we know that Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, and there wasn't three men. There, there was four and one who looked like the Son of God. And then, of course, they came out, and they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. So what happened? Well, let's jump down to verse uh, 25. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they, do not, they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near to the mouth of the burning of the furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High, God, come out, come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And then what happened? Well, jump over to verse 38. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servant, who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any god except their god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amidst against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut, off, cut into pieces, and their house shall be made ash heaped, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. <laughs> I love it. Don't you love it? How God even used the wicked to bring glory to His name. And He continues to do that. Likewise, we should be, it should be our desire that God will work in our day and that God will work in the future to bring glory to His name in such manner. I mean, if we ask for God to be glorified in the prosperity of His church, in spreading the gospel, and in extending His kingdom, we must submit our request to His sovereignty and leave it with Him. That's all we can do. Submit our request to Him and leave it with Him because it's His decision when He will do it, where He will do it, and how He will do it. How all of these things will be brought to pass for His glory. I mean, God is working in various nations. God is moving in various nations. I wish He was moving right now in the United States as He did 200 years ago. But for some reason or another, in God's perfect timing and in His mind, He has not chosen to do that in the United States. But He's doing it in Africa. Numerous places in Africa. 
And we give God the praise for that. But yet, at the same time, we continue to pray that God will do it here. In closing, I want to summarize this first petition. First, when we petition God in prayer, it must begin by recognizing that God is God, infinitely holy. He must be honored and sanctified by us and all men because He is who He is. As we saw, He's told Moses, I am who I am. Now, as His children, our desire is for His name to be exalted, His name to be glorified and revered by all men. So, our prayer begins with this praise and adoration that God desires and deserves. So when we speak of sanctifying or glorifying God's name, we in no way mean that we increase His holiness or His glory. For that's impossible. I mean, God doesn't change. God is who He is. God remains God no matter what we say or no matter what we do. God never changes. God is always holy, holy, holy. He's perfect in every area. And this imperative is directed to what men need to do. We know that most men reject God. They reject His Word. And they embrace their various idols. And they worship their self, not reverencing, not honoring, not glorifying God as they were created for. But even as Christians, our speech and our behavior often doesn't render to God the honor that He deserves. And we as Christians ought to know better. I mean, if we do not set God apart from every common and profane thing, who will? The lost? No. We are the ones that must do that. We must adore, we must revere, honor, prize, and esteem God above all things. This first petition reveals if our heart is truly regenerate, if we have a new heart, it desires to see God honored as Yahweh, especially in this dark and wicked world. And it expresses an eschatology that longs for that day when all men will know God as the Lord. Do we pray beginning with an expression longing to see the whole world bow before Yahweh and acknowledging Him as the infinite Holy One? Second, this petition teaches us that God honors and glory, glory of always is the first concern that we should have in prayer. It gives a proper view of life. I mean, our chief end is to exalt God. And this request is foundational to all of the other petitions that are in this prayer. This is first and foremost. We pray... Not only that your name may be honored, God, but we pray, Father, give us our daily bread. Why? So that we might serve you, so that we might glorify you. And then, Father, expand your kingdom so that you will be exalted. So we go right through each petition 
focusing on God. Not ourselves, but focusing on God. And we've seen how the Pharisees prayed, that their prayers were motivated, as Jesus teaches us, and rooted in self-glorification. But Jesus directs us to make the exaltation of the name of God. That's our chief end. And this was certainly His pattern, right? He came, He and He said, He came to glorify Father. He says in John 12, 28, Father, glorify Your name. In John 17, 1 and 2, Father, this is the hour to come. Glorify Your Son and glorify Your Son so that Your Son may glorify You. So if this aspect of prayer is truly grasped by us and practiced by us, then the modern heathenism view of prayer, which is they think the key is health, wealth, self-esteem, and success, all of that will cease if we grasp and practice what Jesus is saying here. And our prayers would be focused more on moving our heart to sing praise to God, regulating our entire life by the work of the Holy Spirit to promote the glory of God and enlighten us to see and grasp His perfections and have a sincere desire to see God glorified among the lost. And humanism would be cast out of the church. And Jesus would be the center of preaching and worship again. Let me close by asking some questions that my friend Richard Smith asked when he taught this particular study on the Lord's Prayer. Not all of his questions, but a few of them. What will it take for our hearts to desire God's glory for His sake rather than ours? Think about that. What will it take for our hearts to desire God's glory for His sake rather than ours? What things do we usually pray for? Think about that. What things do we usually pray? Are our prayers focused on God's glory, His name, His name being hallowed? What do you show about your chief love? Does your life show that God really is your chief love? What if we say words but don't desire them and don't seek them in our daily lives. It's easy to do that, right? It's easy to say words in a prayer. It's easy to pray this prayer, but yet, are they really true in our life? What does the name of God really mean to you? What does it mean to pray for His name? What is the greatest thing that we can desire and pray for others? Some would say salvation, but that's not the greatest desire that we should have for others. Our greatest desire is what? Now, of course, it includes salvation, but our greatest desire is that God would be honored, that God would be glorified. Does this teaching, or does this teach us how to truly pray for others? Would this change the way we pray if we did this? 
What does this teach us about prayer and our heart in prayer? We must deny self to truly pray. Self cannot be first in our heart when we pray if we are to pray according to this truth. Let's pray. Father, how we pray that these thoughts that we have considered concerning this prayer that Jesus has given us would be the foundation of our prayer life. Cause us to understand just how holy, set apart, sanctified your name is. We pray, Father, that our lives would not cause your name to be blasphemed. But we pray that our lives, Father, would exalt your name, bring glory and honor to your name. How we pray, Father, that you would use us to proclaim your name to the nations. And how we long to see the nations, Father, Proclaim your name, just as we saw how Nebuchadnezzar saw your mighty works and proclaimed your name. Father, we know that this can only be done because of salvation. And we pray, Father, if there's those here today that have not experienced this salvation, that today would be the day that their minds would be open to this truth, that they would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, so that they might be able to glorify Your name. Cause us, Father, as Christians, to have a greater understanding of who You are, to spend time truly studying your attributes so that it might move us to worship you more adequately and fervently. Again, we thank you, Father, that you allow us the privilege to commune with you. We thank you that we can come now to this table and feast together upon Christ for what Christ has accomplished for us. We thank You, Father, that He gave us this ordinance. That He told us to remember, to remember what He has accomplished for us on our behalf. And we pray that we would do that, Father, as we remember that He willingly came to this earth, humbled Himself and became like man, the God-man, and lived a perfect life. Not for himself, but he lived that perfect life for us so that we might have his righteousness so that we are accepted in your sight. We thank you that he willingly came to pay the price that we could not pray. We pray, Father, that we would remember it as we come to this table. 
cause us to search our hearts and remember that we are forgiven if we are in Christ, that no sin has not been paid for if we are in Him, which allows us to come and commune with the living God in this supper. Search our hearts, Father, as we pray silently during these moments.